mental health is not visible, meaning uh, you can see muscles when they develop. You can uh, hear a piano sonata that you're playing better after practice. Whereas when it comes to happiness, we can't see the change, for example, when we meditate. Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge podcast, the podcast that's designed to break the stigma around mental health and to create some hope and inspiration and give some practical tips to those that are struggling with mental health, whether it's from personal stories to break the stigma or some advice from professionals in the mental health community. Whether you are struggling with mental health on your own or you know a loved one that is struggling, we are here to support you and to create a community so you know you are not alone. The road to recovery can be difficult and challenging. At Hope to Recharge, we believe that in mental health, together is always better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the online platform for therapy. Are you thinking of starting therapy or are you in need of a new therapist? Go to BetterHelp.com and find the therapist that meets your need. You can access them from your phone, from your tablet, from your computer. No matter where you are in the world, no matter what time of day, you can find your therapist that fits your need. BetterHelp is giving us 10% off the first month. They are so affordable. Go check them out. BetterHelp.com forward slash Hope to recharge. That's betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Gift yourself therapy. Go get yourself wellness. Hello, and thank you for joining me here today. Today, we have an amazing guest, Dr. Ben Shahar. He was a lecturer at Harvard University and writer in the areas of positive psychology and leadership. He taught two of the largest classes in Harvard University history, positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. He has some real tips in getting into happiness and what does happiness mean? How do we get to happiness? How do we measure happiness? Why are so many people looking for more happiness? Why are we lacking so much happiness in our life? You would wonder, you would think nowadays there's so much that we can access, technology, travel, entertainment, and there's still the highest ever rate of depression and anxiety and mental illness. And so many people are yearning for more happiness. So we're going to deep dive with Dr. Tal on this topic. He has written multiple books, The Joy of Leadership, Choosing the Life You Want, Being Happy, Happier, and a book that I recommend everyone should have in their house for themselves or for their kids or for guests that come over. It's a book that Tal wrote with his barber. It's called Shortcuts to Happiness. We're going to discuss it a little bit in this episode. A few um, ideas that I liked from the book, but the book Happier was one of the books that were so pivotal in my recovery. I studied his book, literally studied it inside out. I read it multiple times and I started implementing when I was in deep depression. Once I got a medication, the book really helped me and I was able to implement a lot of his ideas into my day-to-day life. And I practice a lot of them till today. That's why I wanted to have him on our show and I wanted to share his wisdom. And I said, if Harvard University has two courses that are the most popular, with one teacher, one professor, and it's on the topic of happiness, I want him on my show. And I am so grateful that he set aside time for us. And when I reached out to him originally, I did not think he will respond because it was in my dreams. I didn't think it could become reality. And he was so gracious to respond and say, I would love to be on your show. Yes, but not now in a few months. So we waited and now it's here. So welcome to our show. Thank you for joining me here, Dr. Tal. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. So we have a little bit of a um, background that we share. We're both from Israel. You were born in Israel, right? Uh, That's correct. I was born in Ramat Gan, which is just outside of Tel Aviv, and then uh, came to the U.S. for college. And you were in London, because I hear some kind of an English accent there or something. Yeah, I've lived in uh, many countries. I've lived in in England. Uh, I've lived in South Africa. Singapore. Uh, So um, I've been 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 around, been around. Yeah. I always say that Israelis have this search to go around the world. And it's so funny because you spoke about in 
your latest book, Shortcut to Happiness, you were talking about, and I'm going to bring it in later on, about the Hebrew word of vacation. Really, it's chafesh, which means the same um, source of the word of chapes, which is searching. I feel like Israelis love searching because they explore the world. They're not like the richest country, but they travel a lot, you know? And I'm wondering if there's a relationship between the Israelis that are searching for something. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I think there, there, there is certainly something to it, you know? So if Eastern tradition, you know, in India, uh, for example, the, uh, the ideal would be nirvana, or uh, reaching some contentment and, and calm. I think for uh, most Israelis, it's it's mostly about the search, mm. uh, mostly about not finding the answer, but looking. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, we we love we love exploring life. I think we live in a very. I'm saying we when we're in Israel, we live a very stressful life, a military country. There's a lot of stress, and we all look out for each other. And sometimes we have to disconnect to search elsewhere versus the little life that we know and the little life that we know is really little in Israel versus the whole world and it's nice to get out and explore and see and disconnect from that very intense life that we have in Israel indeed you know but I must say what what I find perplexing when I look at the research on happiness and uh, national level happiness Israel is among the happiest countries in the world is that true it is indeed uh, other countries that that appear at the top include in this some of the Scandinavian countries, specifically Denmark and Norway. Colombia is very high up, uh, as well as some other Latin American countries. Uh, so is Australia. So the, the question is why these countries, you know, especially why a country like Israel or why a country like Colombia? The answer lies, and this is research done by people like Daniel Kahneman and Sonia Lubomirsky and Gallup Organization and the UN. The, the, the answer is that in the happiest countries in the world, there is a real focus on relationships. Mm. So people feel like they're supported socially. And this is exactly what you were talking about uh, a minute ago uh, when you were saying, you know, everyone is looking out. And uh, we are, uh, you know, in Aristotle's words, we are rational uh, animals. But I think even perhaps before we were rational animals, we we're social animals. Mm -hmm. And we need this connection. We need relationships. And it turns out that relationships are indeed the number one predictor of happiness. And when you look at the happiest countries in the world, what's common among them is just that, focus on interpersonal connections. Wow, because you don't land in Ben-Gurion and feel that everybody's happy around you. I, I know that one of the major things that my husband is very into when we land, my husband is a big jokester and he tries to turn it into like a thing every time we go to Israel. How many checkout girls can I get them to smile? How many cashiers, sorry, cashiers, can I make them smile right away? Will they smile? The tellers at the bank, the passport control, will they smile at me? Will they say good morning? Will they say welcome to Israel? And you wouldn't think that they're really a happy country, but maybe internally they really are. Externally, they don't feel like they need to show it to you, which in America, it's the opposite maybe. Mm, you know, yeah, there, there, there are many issues um, in, in what you say. So the first thing is, you know, Israel has... Uh, many virtues and many strengths. A service culture, a service mentality is not one of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, there is a lot that Israel can learn from uh, <laughs> from the U.S. When it comes <laughs> but they will die for someone. They will take a bullet yeah. for anyone that they don't know. And and, and sometimes quite literally, you know, yeah. that, that so many serve in, in the military. The, the, the other thing is, yes, you know, how, how is happiness manifested or how is mood in general Mm -hmm. uh, manifested. You know, there is, um, you go, you go on social media and what do you see? Everyone is laughing and smiling. Everyone is happy. Everyone has the perfect job, the perfect family, perfect, perfect setting. And, you know, we go online and we see it and we, we suddenly start to think, wait, why? Everyone has it together except for me. I'm the only one who's not, who's not always happy is, you know, doesn't have the perfect job of the perfect family. The thing though is that we don't want to stand out. So we pretend to, and we put on those pictures that depict us as seemingly having that, that perfect life. And what we're doing essentially is we're contributing to the great deception that I believe is at least partially responsible for the great depression that we are uh, seeing in, in our culture. 
just putting on that facade and, and, and smiling all the time and how are you? I'm great. Thank you. When in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling down. Um, this is not helpful. It's actually not helpful for the person who's, who's asking you. And it's also not helpful for the person expressing it. You know, it's, it's, it's inauthentic. Now, yeah. I'm not saying that um, a cashier or, you know, someone who's uh, selling in a store when, when you ask them, so how are you? needs to tell you their life story and how miserable they are. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, no, you know, they, they have a, a job and, and part of the job is to, uh, to be cordial and to smile and uh, to make you feel good. The challenge is that when this becomes a way of life and then when we don't have an outlet for genuine, real emotions in our life, and that is unfortunately the case uh, in many countries around the world, uh, the U.S. being being one of them, mm-hmm. it's it's not okay to look as if you're have, not having a great time. It's not okay to be weak, or it's not fully okay. Whereas in uh, in in some cultures, Israel being one of them, there is less of the need to put on that that facade. Yeah, you know, one of the things when I moved, I moved here when I got married 18 years ago. I have to practice saying it because we just uh, ha- are having our anniversary now. So it's 18 years. And one of the things people are like, oh, she's Israeli. She says it as it is. And it took people time to get used to me being blunt, not sugarcoating things, saying, telling my mind and being okay with it. And you don't have to get insulted just because I said something like, it's the truth. It doesn't make you better or worse. This is the truth. And it really took me time to soften up my tone and to adjust to the American society. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, I spent a lot of time in Singapore, I actually lived there and, and worked in Singapore, in, uh, in India in China a lot. I also worked with Israeli companies and it was always a challenge because in the US people find the Israeli uh, approach, uh, you know, blunt or, uh, or, or rude sometimes. Mm-hmm. Triple that in terms of what, how the Asians experience mm-hmm. uh, Israel, you know, where, where, where face uh, saving is, is so important, where, where manners are elevated you know, to the, to the level of, of, of a ritual, of a mm-hmm. sacred uh, mm-hmm. ritual. You know, I guess both, uh, both sides uh, need, need to learn. You know, Israelis need to refine their manners and, and be more sensitive. And at the same time, there, there is a lot, uh, a lot to say for candor and, uh, and openness and authenticity. Yeah. The right approach, I guess, lies somewhere somewhere in between. In between. But it works for Israelis and they could literally have a massive fight and then a few minutes later have a mangal, a barbecue together and sing and it will be okay. Just because we are hurting for a minute doesn't mean we don't see you and we can't still be friends. So there's there's a fine balance and it's definitely a cultural thing, but it, it brings me back to something that I heard you say once that before the culture, there's the human approach in us, like the humanity in us that there's either depression, anxiety, happiness, and then there's the cultural thing. And the culture always comes after the human basic needs. So I want to deep dive into that first a little bit. But before we deep dive into that, you and I want to give the audience a background on why you got into this, because it's an interesting story. And I think it's an empowering story to the audience. I became interested in the field of happiness because of my own unhappiness. So I was uh, an undergraduate at Harvard studying computer science. And I found myself in my second year doing very well academically. Uh, doing very well in sports. I played uh, on the varsity squash team, uh, doing quite well socially, and yet being very unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me, I must say, because when, when I looked at my life from the outside, things looked great. You know, basically, I, I checked the right boxes as, as far as I could tell. And yet from the inside, it didn't feel that way. And I remember uh, one very cold Boston morning going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching majors. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she asked me why. And I said, because I have two questions. The first question is, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? Mm -hmm. And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate degree in philosophy and psychology, uh, and then um, went over to 
the other Cambridge in England to study education, and then back to Harvard for my PhD, all the time focusing on how can I help myself, individuals, couples, uh, organizations, schools, communities, increase levels of happiness. And this, this is what I've been doing for the past uh, 25 years, you know, searching. Wow. But you found it. So here is the thing, you know, m many people... Uh, ask me uh, uh, the following question. They ask me, so Tal, are you finally happy? <laughs> so you got in now, you know, 25 years, uh, hence, are you finally happy? And my answer to that is that I don't know. Mm. And the reason why I don't know is because I don't think there is a point before which we're unhappy, after which we're happy. In other words, it's not a binary zero one. Instead, the way I see it is that happiness resides on a continuum. In other words, it's a journey and it's a lifelong journey. So yes, today I am happier than I was 25 years ago or even five years ago. At the same time, I certainly hope that five or 10 years from now, I'll be happier than I am today. So it is a lifelong journey. And, and, and therefore, you know, I continue to search you know, when uh, you know, I have courses that I teach and, and I always make the point at the beginning, you know, I'm taking this course along with you. I'm a f fellow journeyer. That's how I sign off all my you know, letters to my students because I'm on that path as well. And yeah. that path uh, comprises uh, ups and downs, difficulties and hardships, as well as uh, wonderful moments, uh, joy and, uh, and satisfaction. You know, this, this is life. It has it all. Exciting. Yeah. yeah, that's very humbling of you to say. And it makes us feel that we're not alone. And even professors have the journey that we do, and they're along with us on the journey. But it, it goes into a question that I wanted to ask you next. What is happiness? We're studying happiness, but what is happiness? Like, how do we define? You said that there's no, there's no way to measure it, but so what are we looking at when we say we're studying the science of happiness? Yeah, so, you know, t today we are better at measuring happiness. The challenge, though, is that is the definition. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how do we define happiness? And you know, many people equate happiness with beauty. And they say, well, it's hard to define, but, you know, you, you know it when you see it. Or when it comes to happiness, you know it when you experience it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's one approach. I must say, personally, I don't subscribe to that approach. And I, I do think that it's important to define happiness because when we define it, we, we are more likely to, to, to find it. Because if I don't know what I'm looking for, how am I going to, how am I going to find it? How, how do I define happiness? And again, this is my definition. There, there, there are many others. Um, I define happiness as a combination of five elements. Those five elements are spiritual well-being, physical well-being, intellectual well-being, relational, interpersonal well-being, and finally, emotional well-being. So spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional well-being. Um, an easy way to, to remember them is that um, they make up the acronym SPIRE, spiritual, physical, okay. intellectual, relational, and emotional. Now, the question is, what does each one of these, of these mean? So when it comes to spiritual well-being, essentially it means two things. The first thing is a sense of meaning and purpose. Now, many people find spirituality in religion. However, we can also find spirituality in, uh, in the work that we do in the family that we raise, in the volunteering that we, we commit to. So a sense of meaning and purpose is, is an important part of spirituality. The second important element of spirituality is being present, being mindful. mindful. When I'm present, whether it's to a, a, a tree outside my window or to a conversation or to a, a breath going in and out, when I'm present to something, then I'm experiencing the spirit, its spirit and spirituality. So meaning and presence, that's spiritual well-being. Physical well-being is about uh, the mind-body connection, of course. Uh, it's about uh, sleep and rest in general. It's about physical exercise, movement. It's about uh, nutrition, uh, of course. So that's physical well-being. Intellectual well-being is about curiosity, learning. Do you know that research came out just recently uh, showing that people who are constantly learning, who are constantly asking questions, who are curious, actually live longer. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're, they're healthier, their immune system is stronger, not to mention the fact that they are 
happier, psychologically better off. So curiosity is part of intellectual well-being. Um, Deeply delving into a text or into a work of art or into a natural phenomenon, whatever it is, um, or into a social situation, intellectually engaging with something, that's intellectual well-being. Then relational well-being, I mentioned earlier, number one predictor of happiness, quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Also, when it comes to relational well-being, it's our relationship with ourselves Mm -hmm. that is no less important. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we think about giving, it's about giving others, contributing to others, cultivating the relationship with them, as well as giving ourselves, taking care of ourselves. Uh, So that's relational well-being. And finally, emotional well-being. And when it comes to emotional well-being, once again, there are two important elements. The first is cultivating pleasurable emotions, emotions such as gratitude, uh, such as uh, joy, such as uh, excitement, and and so on. At the same time, it's also learning to deal with painful emotions. Mm. I mentioned earlier, no one is exempt from painful emotions. We We all experience them. The question is, how do we deal with them when they are arise? Are we resilient? Do we have a strong psychological immune system Mm -hmm. uh, to handle hardships and and challenges? So how do we deal with painful emotions? How do we cultivate pleasurable ones? That's emotional well-being. So it's these five elements that go together and um, make up the, the elements, the constituents and the antecedents of a happy life. So if someone's lacking, let's say, relationship, will their happiness always be low? Or can they make a relationship with themselves that they're so in love with themselves that that's okay? Yeah. So, you know, so th- there's some fascinating research. This this came out of uh, one of the longest and most extensive studies ever conducted. Um, and it started um, over 80 years ago in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And a group of Harvard researchers uh, decided to study Harvard students, there were, you know, young students, you know, 18 and and up, as well as the members of the community just outside Harvard. And and, and the the community there was usually low income, at risk population. So they studied these two populations, the Harvard students, as well as the, uh, the low income population, and they followed them for 75 years. Wow, and they measured well, most of them you know were not alive by by the end of the uh, of the study, but they measured everything that they could think of. They studied their environment, they interviewed of course the participants but they all, and they also interviewed their partners and their colleagues, mm-hmm. and they measured them physiologically and psychologically. you name it and after seventy five years they um they asked an important question, and the question was, what predicts happiness levels. And they looked at numerous variables. Again, they had millions and millions of data points. So they looked at numerous variables. And the answer that they came up with, the number one predictor of happiness is relationships. Wow. Now, the interesting thing is that it didn't really matter what kind of relationships. Now, going going to your question now. Yeah, for some of them, it was a a romantic relationship. you know, someone they've been together with for for many years. For others, it was uh, their colleagues at work whom they were very close to and 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 had uh, intimate, open, and caring relationships with. For mm-hmm. others, it was their BFFs, you know, best friends forever. For some, it was their extended family. It read for for others, it was in their religious communities. It actually didn't matter where they experienced those relationships, but they had to have them if they were a happy or a very happy life. Again, the happiest ones were had uh, strong, supportive relationships. Now they asked another question: What best predicts health? physical health. The answer, the best predictor of physical health, relationships. Wow. So yes, of course, nutrition matters. It matters a lot. And of course, exercise matters a great deal. At the same time, the best predictor, quality time you spend with people you care about and who mm-hmm. care about you. So the R of Spire is, is, is not just another element. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fundamental one. Very interesting. And it's not shocking. I'm a very, I'm huge into relationships. I love people. I like, I adore people. I'm a people person. So it, it's not shocking to me, but I know a lot of people that need their own space. They're okay with being them, with right. themselves. And actually people are not good for them. Like they don't get along with good with people. So like it can interfere with their happiness. Yes, it depends. 
what does it depend on? You know, th th there are people who are by their very nature, and this mm -hmm. is um, a natural phenomenon, by their very nature are introverts. Mm -hmm. Now, introverts uh, don't feel comfortable um, in a large audience or in a large group, rather. They feel more comfortable, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, and they don't have 100 best friends like many extroverts mm -hmm. do. They have that one uh, friend. So the key is not whether or not, whether you have 100 or one. The key is that you have close relationships. So a person who is maybe um, is, is unfriendly and doesn't really form any relationships or at least not healthy relationships, that's a problem. But if a person has one or two very close intimate relationships, not a problem at all, can be mm -hmm. as happy or happier than a person who has you know, 100 or 200 relationships. So it really goes back to my original thought of they say you can never really have a good relationship with others until you have the best relationship with yourself. You can't love others until you love yourself. So can you have a relationship with yourself that you're satisfied if you really love yourself and you're really connected to yourself, like mindful of who you are? Okay, you did the work. You went to therapy for so many years. You've done the exercise. You're in love with yourself. Is that enough? So here is the thing, you know, when you look at um, happiness across lifespan, what you usually find is that people get happier as they get older. Now, for many people, this is counterintuitive because they say, you know, I'm, I'm less strong than I was then. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't look as good as I did then. You know, I can't uh, run as, as, as far as I, you know, I'm going downhill in a sense, you know, certainly when it comes to, to health, you know, that's the natural course of, of, of things. And yet, and yet people are happier mm -hmm. generally as they age. Why is that? And the answer, one of the answers is that when we age, we become more accepting. We become more accepting of our imperfections. We become more accepting that good enough really is good enough. As a result of that, we also like ourselves more mm -hmm. because we don't hold ourselves to that perfect standard where we need to do it all, where we need to achieve all those things. Otherwise, we're not good enough. Mm -hmm. And it's with this acceptance of imperfection that happiness rises and it rises because our relationship with ourselves improves we're no longer at war with who we who we are we're at peace with who we are and that happens after midlife crisis right <laughs> it happens after midlife crisis indeed yeah in fact you know speaking of crises there is almost an inevitable need for crisis before significant growth. And by the way, you see it, leadership, the best leaders, when you look at their biography, had experienced one or a number of uh, what Warren Bennis, who was a leadership expert, calls crucibles. Mm -hmm. Very difficult, hard, life-changing experiences. Uh, you see it in relationships. Every great relationship, no exception, has gone through what uh, David Schnarch, the relationship psychologist, calls gridlocks. And gridlocks are not one of those, uh, uh, you know, easy conflicts where, uh, you know, you, you, you fight, you make up, you make love, and then everything is great again. Mm -hmm. uh, gridlocks are, are deeply rooted disagreements where the conflict is about something fundamental, fundamental for both, for both sides. And couples who go through these gridlocks, and I mean go through them, they don't give up because giving up could mean divorce or giving up could mean disconnect and being together but not really being together. Couples who go through these gridlocks fight it out, so to speak, hold on to themselves and hold on to each other as they go through the gridlock. There are the couples who enjoy more more intimacy and more long-term love and passion. I'm so happy you're saying this because I've been saying this for years. I never knew to base this on anything because whenever somebody has a crisis, I always say, you will so appreciate afterwards. You're going to go through it and you're going to thrive and you're going to understand and you're going to connect on a deeper level. And they look at me like I'm crazy. They're about to get divorced. They're about to walk out. They're about to shoot themselves. And and I'm like, I'm telling you, hold on, because the joy afterwards is on a deeper level they could never get to. And I know this from experience from me and my husband, because from the day we met, we were disagreeing. 
And our mentor said, it's fine as long as you know how to understand each other and build upon it. And until the, to this day, we disagree a lot on fundamentals. And sometimes we have real cracks, but we get closer and closer because we have crises in our in our who we are and also we evolve through life and i and i'm so happy you're saying this because you're proving me right after so many years because i really believe and i i live this with my depression people say what is your joy i said my greatest joy in life. And I feel joy every day because I wake up without depression. There is nothing else that I need. I just need to wake up with no depression and I am in joy. And that's, and I wouldn't know that if I didn't go through depression. Yes. One of the, um, one of the mantras that I repeat over and over again to myself in, in my lecture is, is that first step to happiness is embracing unhappiness. When we truly embrace, accept painful emotions, difficulties, hardships, that's when we're truly ready to also embrace joy and, and happiness. Yes. So Golda Meir, the Israeli prime minister, once said, those who can't weep with their whole heart can't laugh with their whole heart either. I just sent that to somebody. I literally just sent that a few days ago to somebody that said, I'm giving up hope. I said, just remember the feeling goes both ways. Just like you feel pain now, the joy and happiness can go just to that level and higher. So can you imagine? It's not just the pain you can feel so strong. The happiness and the joy can come just as strong or stronger when you overcome and you find that contrast. So yes, it's such a powerful lesson when you're in the dark that the depths of emotion can go also high and hold on and it's worth it. It's really worth it. I'm so passionate about happiness because I know the both sides and I just want to gift it to everybody. I just want everybody to taste it and just, if we could just give it out a little bit and say, this is what it tastes like and you can have it if you work hard to get to. And that's my next step of my question. It, people think that it's just like the pill to happiness. There is no pill to happiness. It's hard work. It's constant. Why is it? that when it comes to working out at the gym and losing weight and building muscles, it's so clear. You got to work on it all the time. But when it comes to happiness or to mental health, it's something that they don't realize it's a lifelong work and constant. And when you get better at it, you have to go better and continue. What is it about mental health that is so hard to understand that practice is necessary constantly? Probably the, the, the reason is that mental health is not visible, meaning uh, you can see muscles when they develop. You can uh, hear a, a piano sonata that you're playing better after practice. So it's something that you can uh, sense. It's accessible through the senses. Whereas when it comes to happiness, we can't see the change, for example, when we meditate regularly, or rather we couldn't see the change because today we can. Today, we have the, uh, the technology to quite literally see our brains transforming, changing their form. So we know, for instance, if we um, meditate for uh, a period of eight weeks, uh, we're able to actually see how the brain changes. And it doesn't just change randomly. It changes towards a happier brain. It changes towards a uh, more resilient brain. And uh, what we find, we also have the research showing that, is that when you show people how the brain changes, they're more likely to actually persist with the change effort, uh, which goes to the point, you know, you, you, you're more likely to persist in the gym if you see changes to your muscle or to your uh, uh, physical composition. Uh, in the same way, when people see tangibly see how their brain changes, they're more likely to invest in practices that lead to it. And by the way, it's not just meditation that changes the brain. It's also a regular physical exercise. Remember the mind-body connection. It's also uh, expressing gratitude. Gratitude, yeah. Counting your blessings on a regular mm -hmm. basis. It's writing a, keeping a journal that actually literally rewires the brain. So today we know that many of our, of the interventions that, that help, you can visibly track the, the change that's, that's taking place in the brain and that's affecting the way we experience life.
I wanted to ask you before you were saying about the five things that you define happiness. And one of them is education, knowledge, acquiring knowledge. And I find that a lot of the people that I speak to, including myself, one of our greatest moments of sadness and depression is from lack of understanding the world. And I find that the deeper the person is, the more he's going to tend, he, she tend to depression. I I think there's a relationship between not understanding and sadness. Yes. And you know, this is also one of the reasons why we generally become happier as we age for two reasons. One is because we gain perhaps a deeper understanding of the world, but even more importantly, we also accept the fact that there are certain things that we won't know. In other words, we live the mystery of the world. We accept the mystery. We embrace the mystery, the miracle of it all. Mm -hmm as opposed to um, being uh, obsessed with uh, understanding everything, because there is so much that, that we don't understand and probably never will understand. In fact, uh, Socrates, who lived you know, 2,500 years ago, was once told that, that he was uh, declared the wisest man in Athens. Of course, Athens at that time was the, uh, was the center of philosophical thought in least in the Western world, and um, the wisest man in Athens. And he thought for a while, and then he said, yes, I actually agree with that. And the reason why I'm uh, uh, the smartest man in Athens is because I know that I don't know. Oh, wow. Um, yes. In other words, he uh, accepted his uh, ignorance, or at least partial ignorance, yeah. and was able to live with it, to make peace with peace. it, accept it. It's a, I think that's something I need to work on because when I see pain around me and I see things that you can't understand, all world crises and, and things that are just like, how can this be? And as somebody that God-fearing, I'm Orthodox, like, and you, I believe in God and I believe that there's good. How could such bad come when there's such good? And the contrast, it's, it could be really depressing to deep dive into that, I guess, acceptance of you we don't know everything and just giving up and just saying, okay, fine, it is what it is and giving into this whole idea of not understanding. I, I like that. And I'm going to have to practice that on myself and maybe after my midlife crisis that will balance <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it goes a lot of um, what we talked about, whether it's uh, accepting uh, uh, ignorance or whether it's uh, accepting pain and unhappiness goes to the serenity prayer, which is, you know, God grant me God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yes. yes. You know, th this is, uh, again, a mantra that I, I very much live by or try to live by. Before you went to college, did you have an understanding of what happiness is? Did you have ever emotional battles inside you that once you said, you know what, this is not bringing me to happiness, computer science, I need to change. Like, what were you measuring it against? But did you have a goal to reach in happiness or you just realized you're declining? Yeah, in, in many ways, I did feel like I was uh, declining because because um, initially, my the equation, at least in in my mind, was success equals happiness. Initially, uh, you know, I was uh, I was an athlete. I was a squash player. My goal was to win the Israeli national championships, and you know, I was not happy before. But I said to myself, uh, "That's okay. You don't have to be happy now. You can experience, you know, stress and and and, and pain and, and frustration. But when you win the Israeli championships, then you'll be happy." Mm. And eventually, I won the Israeli national championships. And I was very happy for about four hours. Really? And, and then after four hours, you know, I went back to the, um, you know, to the same dis-ease that I felt uh, before, only worse. And this is why I'm saying it was actually declining because now I was less sure about my path. And then I said, okay, so I have to... Um, um, to win the world championships. You know, I, I, never, I never won the world championships, but I did improve and, and played professionally. It didn't make me happy. And then I said, okay, so I have to get into Harvard, then I'll be happy. And I got in and I was very happy for, you know, eight hours. Wow. And, then, and then back to the same, you know, Sisyphean battle of believing that, that something will make me happy and it doesn't. And you know, the main difference between sadness and depression, mm -hmm. the main difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. You know, sadness is something we experience on a regular basis, all of us. Mm -hmm. um, 
it becomes depression when we lose hope. What was beginning to happen to me when I realized that, you know, every time, you know, I get to uh, reach a milestone, achieve something, then I become happy, but only momentarily. What happened to me there was that I was losing hope because I said, wait a minute, this model doesn't work. So do I have no hope of becoming happier? And that's when I, I resolved to, to, to figure it out and change my course from, as, as I mentioned earlier, from computer science to philosophy and psychology, because I was hoping that that's where I would find find uh, the answers or at least some of the answers. Why would the result not be, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm going to just live life doing nothing because achieving goals are not so, so exciting anymore because I achieved my goals. I'm not so happy. So let's just live life on a couch and not achieve goals. Why? Like, how did you know to not do that? I didn't. It wasn't in my DNA to, to do nothing. I would actually, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a type A, you know, for me, going on vacation and just lying on the beach and doing nothing is a punishment. Is, 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 is stressful. <laughs> it's not that I didn't think that, well, maybe I need to learn to do nothing, to embrace nothingness, but, but I wasn't there. But over the years, I've, I've come to a, a different realization. So over the years, um, you know, I, I noticed that there are two schools of thoughts when it comes to achieving happiness. I mean, there are many, but, but two of them are, one is about goals. When you achieve, the path to happiness is through goals. You, you become a, a sports champion, you'll be happy. You, you make this amount of money, you'll be happy. You get this job, you'll be happy. You get, uh, you know, this uh, partner, you'll be happy. It's all about milestones. Mm -hmm. What the research shows is that it's not the case. Yes, we become happy when we achieve a milestone, but only momentarily. It's not lasting happiness. It's not deep happiness. It's ephemeral. So the path to happiness is not through goals. So then you have the opposite school that says, no, the path to happiness is by letting go of goals. It's through non-attachment. It's, um, it's by just being present. However, I do not think that is the, the path to happiness, certainly not for most people, because we're goal-oriented as human beings. Uh, we need something to to look forward to. We need a goal. We need an aspiration. A motivation. It's something motiv to, yeah, to get us going. To get us going, to get us out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I don't think that's the answer. So what is the answer? Yeah. How do you reconcile these two opposing worldviews through the following connection? You see, goals are important. However, the reason they are important is as a means rather than an end. They're important because it's through goals that we can most enjoy the present moment. So for instance, if I wake up every morning thinking, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do today. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Should I go right or left? Uh, should I just stay in bed? Well, this is not the prescription for happiness. However, if I have a goal, a clear goal, for example, I'm going to write this book. I get up in the morning and I sit in front of the computer and I'm passionate about writing this book and I write. And this is precisely where I can be fully present. It's loving the process. Go. I can let go yes. of the goal because I've already got it. I can let go and focus on what I'm doing right here and right now. And this is how you reconcile future goals with present experiences. Have a goal, but the objective or the important thing for happiness is not achieving that goal. The important thing is having that goal, having it so that it liberates me to enjoy the present moment. In other words, goals are means rather than ends. Present moment is the end rather than the mean. I'm loving it so much. I'm working with my coach on loving the process setting a goal and not being so anxious about getting there, but falling in love with the process and the transformation that I had. And the results are so much better when I'm not obsessing on the goal, but I'm obsessing about loving the process of getting to it. And sometimes the actual process is more exciting than achieving the goal. And I'm seeing it. Yeah, absolutely right. Because the process is is life whereas the goal is uh, a, a small instance you know sort of like a picture 
Mm-hmm. No, life is life is a long movie. Mindfulness is not something that we have to do constantly because if we are in constant mindfulness, we're not moving fast enough, I think, right? We have to practice mindfulness in the process, but not constantly because then it pauses. Is that true? Well, it depends how, how you define a mindfulness practice. You know, when I sit and, and write, I'm mindful. When I'm present and engaged, I'm mindful. I'm also mindful, at least some of the time, when um, when I focus on the breath going in and out. Mm-hmm. You can be mindful when you pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be mindful when you listen to someone. So mindful means present moment awareness. The words of uh, John Kabat-Zinn, his best known book is, wherever you go, there you are. It's about being present. Yes, someone just mentioned his book today, actually, and I sent his Google talk about mindfulness and he did a whole thing and he, he was he was mocking Google that there's not so much mindfulness. They don't bring it into their culture to be so mindful at Google, but he did a whole hour plus presentation and workshop on mindfulness. And yeah, it, I guess it's a it's not easy, especially when there's so much noise around life, kids, job, responsibility, community. It's hard to be in the present now when the our to-do list is so, so long. But I guess when you're mindful, you're really loving the process and you're in it, you're experiencing it. And that's what you're saying is is the ultimate happiness. Um, I always had this question and I remember reading, I think it was Brene Brown because I was fascinated that there is a difference between happiness and joy. Joy is a little bit deeper. Happiness is from moments, from things, from more physical maybe, and joy is more spiritual. Can you give me the definition between both of them? Yeah, so so this is where it gets to personal definitions. I, I see happiness as, as much deeper. I see happiness as encompassing joy. For me, joy would be more the emotional element within the Spire model. Happiness includes a sense of meaning and physical well-being, and it includes intellectual development and, of course, interpersonal development. So it it depends how you define it. And again, there is no right or wrong definition, though it is important to have a definition so that you know what you're pursuing. I do not see happiness as just a momentary experience. That to me is pleasure or joy, not happiness. Right. What is one of the exercises you teach that you think are, if somebody came to you, they have only 45 minutes with Professor Tal and they're like, okay, give me something that I could do every day for five to 10 minutes, like the foundation, the basic, the, the, the thing that will start moving the needle for others. What would that one practice be? I would decline the question. <laughs> there, isn't, there isn't just one practice, but I, w- I would give a number of practices that you can fit into you know, 10 or 15 minutes a day. And these would, in- would include counting your blessings, expressing what you're grateful for. It would include you know, a- a three, four minutes of mindfulness. It would uh, include reading to yourself the things that are most important to you. In other words, writing down what your core values are, whether it's uh, accepting of oneself and others, whether it's being generous and kind, whether it's about um, taking uh, deep breaths on a regular basis, but having reminders and reading them and rereading them day in and day out until they become second nature. Additionally, I would also recommend what Dan Buettner, author of The Blue Zones, recommends, which is inconveniencing yourself, meaning walk rather than uh, walk up the um, the stairs rather than take the elevator when possible, or uh, you know get those uh, steps in on a regular basis. So these are things that we can do without too much extra investment, but there are things that can make a difference in the long term if we persist. And that's a big if. The checking in with our core values, should they be the same core values like the beginning of 2020? Sit down with our resolutions and say, okay, this year, and I I know that core values change with life. Like our core values of 10 years ago are definitely different than today. The whole list changes. It has to. Um, Some can be the same, but when we evolve, our core values change. So do we have to write a list and just repeat the list ourselves? Yes, we write the list. And the values are the things that are important for us to be reminded of. You know, meaning uh, a core value for me is uh, is honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do not remind myself every day to be honest because I feel that I'm an honest person and I do not need 
reminder of that. At the same time, I do remind myself to be uh, uh, more accepting and to give myself the permission to be human. Mm. day in and day out. I do remind myself every day uh, to be uh, more patient and to trust the process. I do remind myself every day to be present more of the time. Um, I do remind myself uh, to give, to help, to contribute Mm -hmm. uh, day in and day out. These are the things that I I feel like I do need to remind myself. These are the core values that I read every day, every morning. I do it with uh, right after my 10-minute meditation. So once it becomes your habit, because you talk about in your books, you talk about making something into a habit. Don't have a New Year's resolution, just turn it into a habit. You brush your teeth every day. If you drink coffee, and you need your coffee, you're never going to forget your coffee in the morning. It's part of your habit. And you don't even realize that you're grabbing your coffee as you're running to your car. So once it becomes a habit, does it come off the list of things that we have to train ourselves? Once you feel like it's second nature, yes. You know, I don't need to remind myself, as you say, that to brush my teeth every day. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I don't need to remind myself to eat my salad. It's, it's just part, it's already uh, embedded. It's a habit. It's mm-hmm. a ritual. Right. So because I've been practicing gratitude for years, years and years and years, I'm actually doing the creating miracles in 40 days. It's a practice of deep diving into gratitude, but bringing also negative things that happen into the gratitude. Gratitude was part of me for years and years and years. I grew up with gratitude in my DNA because my father was all about gratitude. You say when he used to be on the Eged bus and every Eged bus knew him because he was the one in the back of the bus saying, Toda Hanahag, thank you. And everybody was waiting for him. Gratitude was a thing by him. We grew up with gratitude, but I still practice it. And I still see a difference, even though part of my, who I am, but if I stop practicing it, I will see a decline. And it's, so how is that? Well, the, the, um, the gratitude exercise, this is something I also do every day, um, can contribute to our happiness throughout our lives. The key here is to be mindful, meaning I can go through the motion every night and write five things for which I'm grateful, but do it as a, as, as a matter of habit without really thinking about what I'm writing. In contrast, I can you know, lie down in bed, close my eyes and think about you know, my, my, my wonderful family. And even though every night I think about my wonderful family, still experience them with, in the words of Barbara Fredrickson, heartfelt positivity. Yeah. And when we experience it as such, in fact, we're experiencing it as if it's for the first time with freshness. And that's why we benefit from it day in and day out. Okay. So it's not something that once it's a habit, you let go. No, reactivating. no. Also exercise, physical yeah. exercise. It's a habit. You don't let go of uh, physical exercise. Not at all. What I'm saying is that you may not need to remind yourself to do something. For example, you know, to be honest or to eat your salad. Mm-hmm. Um, but you may need reminders in other areas, such as being more accepting or uh, or being more patient. And again, I'm talking about my specific case. So you're basically saying that the reminder doesn't need to be there because it's already a second nature and it's happening anyway. But if we don't think about the gratitude, we're not activating that emotion that brings up the positive energy. It's there in the background, but we have to activate it in order to vibrate on a higher level and to go to the happier that you talk about. Exactly. Interesting. One of the things that I asked you before, before we started recording is where we live in a society that we have access to almost any information we want. We can send people to the moon. We know black holes. Like we know so many things that were gifted in our generation and so much research and medicine and technology, so much awareness on mental illness and mental health and happiness, joy. But yet we are living in a crisis of depression, mental illness, and suicide. How could that be? Let me, let me share with you a study that came out recently, which, um, which essentially reinforces uh, what you say, though it focuses on, um, on teenagers. So every five years, uh, psychologists look at the mental health state of uh, American teenagers. And every five years, it's, um, you know, maybe there is 1% up, 1% down. This time, however, when Gene Twenge who is in uh, San Diego, when, when she looked at the data, she found that among teenagers, relative to five years ago, levels of depression went up by over 30%. 
Loneliness went up by over 30%. Suicide levels went up by over 30% relative to five years ago. We had never seen such a radical increase in, in those numbers, never. And um, when she looked at the data and analyzed it, she came to the following conclusion. She said, what's mostly responsible for this very troubling, uh, tragic change is, in her words, the ascendance of the smartphone, the ascendance of the smartphone. And it's not just with teenagers, it's with uh, adults as well. Today, one of the um, leading uh, addictions is uh, addiction to screen, whether it's to social media, whether it's to pornography, whether it's to video games. Mm -hmm. And it's exacting a very high price from uh, teenagers and adults alike. Why? For various reasons. One, first, because uh, when we're in front of the screen for so many hours a day, it means we're less active. We're not moving. And physical exercise is very important. Mm -hmm. Two, and this is the main reason, is that virtual relationships are no substitute for real relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, spend, having 100 friends on social media is no substitute for having that one BFF. We need the face-to-face -face interactions. We need that intimacy. We need that connection, which is why the prescription is that we need to disconnect in order, in order to connect. connect. We need to disconnect from technology in order to mm -hmm. connect with people. In a way, it's a little bit um, losing hope in us really um, learning all this and learning about mental health. We learned there's so many nonprofits and books and self-help books. You had two of the largest courses in Harvard University about happiness. Obviously, there's a yearning, there's a thirst, but yet we're not evolving. So what's going to be? First of all, there are many people who are evolving. And, and the nature of change is that it happens, you know, slow, 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 and then very fast. Now, this is going to Malcolm Gladwell's idea of the tipping point. We are going to get to that tipping point uh, sooner or later, probably sooner than later, because just like on the individual level, you need to go through a crisis mm -hmm. for growth. On a societal level, you may need to go through a crisis for, for growth. And right now, as you said, we're in a crisis. Mm -hmm. I believe, I strongly believe that it's the, the crisis before, before the light begins to shine again. So you do believe that you, humans will start to reconnect more and the screen time will go less and there's going to be an adjustment. You know, in the stock market, there's, market, there's an adjustment. Society's going to have an adjustment and people are going to disconnect from the screens more and connect to humanity more? You have hope? I, I hope so. I think that things may get worse before they get better. But I, I, I do hope that uh, do, and believe that um, more and more people will realize what a happy, healthy life is about. I want to recommend before we wrap, wrap up your very inspiring short book that I think everybody should have, even for their kids, The Shortcut to Happiness that you wrote but with your barber. Avi, was his name Avi? Yes. And that shows that as when I was when I was listening to it, I was because I, I do a lot of audio books because I travel a lot and I was listening and I was smiling the entire time because I was visualizing the Israeli warmth, giving you a cup of coffee. Come have a cup of coffee with me. Come enjoy. Come just relax. Everything will be okay. They give you the sense that everything's going to be okay. When they're your friend, everything's going to be okay. And you you there was two things that were that stuck in my mind. One was the giving that you said that the word Natan in Hebrew is giving and the first and last letter are the same. Maybe you should explain it because I'm probably going to mess it up. Yes. So um, the, the word for giving in Hebrew is Natan. It's like the name Nathan, uh, but Natan. And when you spell Natan, whether it's in, uh, in Hebrew or in, uh, in, in Roman letters, you get a palindrome, a word that is read from right to left and left to right in, in the same way. And that is not a coincidence. There's a lot of wisdom in, uh, in ancient languages in general, in, in Hebrew in particular. And today we have the science, the data to show that that is true, that when you give, you receive, and you usually receive with interest. So one of the best ways to increase your own levels of, of happiness is through giving. 
It's by contributing to other people's happiness. And that's why, you know, I, I love the word Natan. It's one of the things that I constantly remind myself. Maybe that my name is Matana and Matana is gift in yeah. Hebrew. And growing up in Israel, it was a very hard name to have because my last name was Pupko. So you can imagine, when do you give me my, so it was like popcorn, like popcorn. So it was like, when are you going to give me my gift of popcorn? Like they thought it was like the funniest joke. And I couldn't wait to grow up and get out of that name. But then when I, when I graduated high school, I started in the corporate world. They used to send me to any project because my name opened every door. Like they, like I worked for the, for the secret service. I worked for Misad Washam and they say, okay, just send Matana there because just her name will get her through. And it was really my, I felt like it was a high level personality that I had to live up to because everybody expected a gift. So I had to shine through. It was a very big name to hold, to be. And then when I moved to America, I lost my identity because no one can say it properly. No one knows what it is. So I let, lost, but it was good because it let me just be. So, but there, there is something about giving. And I, when I give, I get. I just love, love, love giving. And I realized after years that I was really giving myself because it was like a loop. And when I wrote it, when I read it in your book, I'm like, oh, that's what it, okay, now I understand. It's really a scientific thing of giving is getting. Yes, and, and what giving does is it creates an upward spiral of uh, between happiness and generosity. Because when I give, uh, I become happier. When I become happier, I'm actually more inclined to give. Right. I give more and then I become happier and I give more and on and on in an upward spiral. And um, creating these spirals within ourselves and between and among people, that is how you bring together, not uh, how you bring together happiness and goodness. Nice. Um, so I highly recommend the book. There's so many nice stories in the book. I'm going to wrap up, but I have two questions that I want to ask, maybe three. First of all, with mental illness, can we apply the same exercises that you talk about, the average exercises, and will it work for us? I, we know about neuroplasticity and gratitude and noticing the good it works. But when is somebody is, you say, the depression is losing hope, they don't have hope versus sadness is they have the hope. Can we really just use these exercises and become happier? Look, usually these exercises, you know, for, for cases of, of depression, major depression, or even uh, dysthymia, which is a uh, um, long-lasting but less intense uh, depression, the science of happiness or positive psychology is not enough. And I would strongly uh, urge the individual to go and seek professional help, uh, see a therapist or a psychiatrist. Having said that, these tools and techniques can help. Uh, they can help when they come with professional help, not instead of. I always said I had to go on medication in order to get off medication. But when I was on medication, I was able to practice in order when I to get mm -hmm. off of it, that'll be strong. I was not able to practice before I got on the medication. It just wasn't, my brain was not there. Uh, what do we do when we live with, we're, we want to be happy, we're practicing happiness and we live with a loved one that is just not happy. Happy and just brings us down. What do we do? We love yeah. the person, but they're just not happy. Yeah, it's very difficult to 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 change others, to to help others. Uh, it's difficult enough changing and helping ourselves. Um, the best we can do is is live by example. You know, I see behind you the 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 words of Gandhi: "Be yes. the change you yes. wish to see in the world." Yeah. And and this is um, also the the best way of of helping, or at least trying to help others. Another is by sharing, sharing stories, sharing research, sharing um, evidence-based tools and techniques, and encouraging uh, our uh, partner, our friend to, uh, to, to practice them or inviting them to join us. You know, if we go for a walk, um, you know, invite them to walk with us. Regular physical exercise has the same effect as our most powerful psychiatric medication. Right. Uh, so if we can help them exercise more, we're helping them become happier. Do you believe that a person can get to a state of happiness that their loved one that's not happy will not affect their happiness? I don't think it's possible to, to be completely uh, oblivious to what our loved ones are experiencing. Um, what we can do is become uh, stronger and be less affected by, by other people's state. But to become impervious to it, I don't think that's 
um, possible, nor do I think it's desirable. But if somebody wants to be so happy and they don't want to be affected by their loved one's unhappiness and not willing to change, and they just want to stay in their happiness, it doesn't mean that they don't love the other one. They just want to be in their state of happiness. No, we, we, we can be happy, though there's, you know, the, the Dalai Lama uh, is a very happy person. And yet he's also uh, experiencing sadness because the people he loves so much are, uh, are being oppressed. Right. They are unhappy or many of them are, are unhappy. So I don't think the goal should be happiness that is completely independent of other people's states. I think empathy, empathy is important and empathy is the ability to feel with, to experience with. Having said that, there are of course degrees, you know, there is empathy where you're completely taken over by someone else's uh, uh, emotions and state. And there is empathy where you feel their pain and yet you still maintain your center. Yeah. Nice, nicely put, because it's a very hard balance, especially when you lived with a loved one that I know that when I was suffering with depression for three years, my husband is really happy and he worked on his happiness because it was hard for him to get there from his very hard childhood. But he stayed in the state of happiness, yet he was very much holding my hand through my process of evolving, not saying, okay, that's your stuff. Yes, you won't bring, he has a saying, your dark clouds won't take away from my shiny day, but it doesn't mean that I'm not seeing your pain, but I'm not going to let it impact my shiny day. Yes. And I would say even more than that, it can be incorporated into my happiness. You know, if I see happiness, not just as pleasure and joy and laughter, but also as meaning, because that spiritual well-being, well, then it's very meaningful for me to spend time with uh, my partner who needs me. Mm -hmm. Very meaningful for me to contribute to them. And in that, that can even be incorporated and add ultimately to my happiness rather than detract from it. I like then we that. go again to the definition of happiness, which, which is important. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. And I think this will be like, a huge thing for my listeners because a lot of them have a problem with that and they don't know the fine balance. And I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. I'm going to end off. I'm sorry we went over time. What is your definition of hope? That too shall pass. Everything comes to an end and there's a cycle and there's a correction as we discussed before. There's always a correction in life. So wait for the correction to happen also in emotions and or with whatever's going through uh, so yes, thank you. Thank you very much. If someone wants to take your online courses, I know you have a lot of stuff. We don't have to be um, in Colombia now to take your classes because a lot of us cannot get into Colombia even though we want to. So where can we get some of your amazing work? Well, uh, a lot of my work through the Happiness Studies Academy and the website is happinessstudies.academy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a, a year-long um, certificate program that, that I'm offering as well as uh, shorter courses that uh, people can enroll in. Okay, great. And everything is on Tal's website. There's a lot of videos that you could see of him. There's so much on Google. You could just Google and get some of his wisdom and get the book. Happier was really one of my anchors for coming back to center, for doing the work. And I do so much of the work till today. So thank you for being part of my journey. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for doing the research. I really have to maybe thank your parents for um, raising someone like you that will not give up and not set goals, but just shift the goal from something that will define happiness or find happiness and really lead the world to find a, a better place for themselves and to find their happiness. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to share before we go? No, just thank you for the gift that you're uh, giving people, your listeners, your audience, and I'm grateful for uh, this interview. Thank you. And I highly recommend visiting his website because there's so much you can learn. Hope you enjoyed this and hope you can create a happier tomorrow. Bye till next time. For all of those that joined the mastermind, it is so wonderful working with you. If there is anyone that still wants to join for March, go to hopetorecharge.com forward slash mastermind. That's hopetorecharge.com forward slash mastermind and sign up. The link is in the show notes. We would love to have those that are ready to work and level up their wellness. 
Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.